Hello, I am Katrina Collier, and as part of my mission to inspire all the people that recruit people to treat people better, I bring you the Hiring Partner Perspective Unedited podcast. Here, you will hear from those hiring leaders who create true partnerships with recruiters, HR, and talent acquisition because they know that it delivers a better result for the business and a better human experience. May this podcast inspire other hiring leaders to create better partnerships with their recruiters and HR. And may it inspire recruiters to create true and valuable partnerships with their hiring leaders because people make businesses succeed and people matter. So let us begin. Mark Gilroy, welcome to the Hiring Partner Perspective podcast, proudly supported by the beautiful people at WorkDrive. I am so excited to talk to you today. Hi, Katrina. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's good. We're trying not to sing. We do really want to go changes, don't we? I mean, there's so many songs about change that we could get into. I know. Then we could just sing the whole podcast. (laughs) But thankfully, regular listeners, you'll know that that's not wise. Um, (laughs) So, Mark, can you tell people who amazingly don't know who you are what it is that you do oh that's kind I am so I'm a professional psychology geek is what I usually say um it's quite a difficult thing to explain but if, if people go that know that I'm incredibly geeky about the world of psychology that usually covers it so if anyone wants to get in touch and geek out about anything psychology based then you know where to find me but aside from that I'm a facilitator I'm an executive coach Officially, I am also managing director of a company called TMSDI, and we work with HR and L&D professionals, and we offer training and a variety of psychometric tools that are used all over the world. So are you not, you're not going to analyse me now. That would be really scary. Let's not oh, go there. I, I will be, but I won't be telling you anything about it, of course. That's just exactly what we do all day long. <laughs> You'll be doing that in that beautiful British way where it's a bit passive-aggressive. You're doing it on the inside, sharing it without a half and a puff if you say if you hear me say that's interesting and start making notes down here then you'll know that there's something going on i'm screwed (laughs) so i saw because of course you're now a famous youtuber that you'd done that brilliant youtube video about change and i think the thing that got to me with it was the sort of the fear of loss but you know can we delve into this so what is it you know if i've got recruiters who are wanting to get hiring managers to join them and partner in change what is the problem? Why are we so scared of it? What's the big deal? It's weird, isn't it? If, if you Google change and, and, and look into it, most people are searching for things like, why is change so hard? Or why do some people that I work with seem to massively resist change? Yeah. And I think that in itself is really interesting that people are looking to almost pathologize it and try and find a way around, you know, to sell change to people or to influence people who are for some reason are stuck and won't listen to the need for change and and so from my perspective from a and I guess I I identify quite strongly as a psycholinguist so for me language is super super important and actually Mm. having a really good way of either reframing or repositioning change using the right language is one fantastic way and we can talk more about that later on in our discussion about sort of ways to help address you know the perception that some people might be stuck around you know negotiating around change but oh, I like that the perception that some people are stuck Ooh, <laughs> you me say that long because it is it, it, yeah. you know we're, we're all about perceptions aren't we and we're all about um, and and our perceptions are a uh, 
a feature of our past and all of our experiences. They have to be. You know, we're, we're yeah. all we're all about a, a combination of all of those things. So, and and, we're, and when you think about the perception that companies had that nobody could work from home, that got blasted out of the water. You know, it's kind of crazy to think we're having this conversation in 2022, mm. but still there's this resistance. So, and that's such a great example because I think for me, I always want to challenge that assumption that change is hard. Mm. Um, if anything has been demonstrated over the last couple of years, change isn't hard. Mm-hmm. Like people can change very quickly and things can change incredibly quickly, um, especially things that, you know, maybe we thought might take a little bit longer than they did. I remember speaking to somebody in the height of the pandemic in 2020, and they were saying that pre-pandemic, they had estimated that in order to get their entire workforce working from home, it would have taken about two years to manage and then deliver on that project. They did it in two weeks. What on earth were they going to do for two years? Um, Here's a laptop, access to the Wi-Fi, off you go. Okay, I'm being very blasé because, of course, that means they're all knowledge workers. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? You know, what, what on earth were they going to do for two years? And, and the, I, my assumption would be there'd be a lot of stakeholder engagement, there'd be a lot of laying the groundwork, there'd be a lot of strategy sessions, sessions. there'd be a lot of fault-finding, I suspect. Yeah. And, oh, gosh, I'm not going to be able to trust my people if they're working at home. I'm going to have yeah. to put monitoring software on their computers. By the way, anyone that's done that, God help you recruiting in the future. <laughs> it's still mad that that's even happened, isn't it? The, or, yeah, the... open Zoom windows. Mm. <laughs> yeah, just this unusual virtual zoo opened mm. up in, mm. in certain organisations. And, it, yeah, it is. I, I, and I think for me, well, that's probably the, the key thing that's changed is that people just realise that you couldn't analyse every possible thing that could go wrong or assess every possible risk because it just needed to happen. Um, yeah. and, so, and so something shifted there. So there's probably some really important lessons that people can take away from how various organisations were able to do that quickly whilst also making people feel safe yeah, and that it wasn't entirely chaotic because mm. <laughs> change can also it, feel like that. Yeah. I found it quite interesting. You know, you think of like traditional call centres. had a couple of conversations with insurance companies, as I'm sure many people did, um, and all their flights and everything were cancelled. But that mm. how happy they sounded because and also you could hear them and they were a bit more relaxed and you could have a longer conversation. So actually one actually upsold me because they were so relaxed rather than in that very loud environment lots of people around them so I found it quite interesting yeah big change big change we weren't going to talk about that but here we are (laughs) the joy of the podcast and you know you referenced the video that I made and so the the general crux of that video was that do you know what change isn't hard Mm -mm. um it happens all the time even pre-pandemic you know there were there's you know people get married they get divorced um the different Items appear on a coffee shop menu and then they disappear again. Things change all the time and people are generally okay with it. The The issue tends to be when that change comes along with a feeling of loss. That was the bit that really stood out to me was that, oh, so we have to work out what they're scared they're going to lose. Absolutely. And, and that's the key to it. So this comes from the work of um, a researcher, author, Nobel Prize winner called and Daniel Kahneman and less famously his colleague Amos Tversky and they did some really interesting research around the idea of mental accounting the idea of value and perceived value and what they found is that pretty consistently people behave very predictably and very safely if um, a change is presented to them as a gain 
So in, in their case, it was often, you know, how much money would you like to win? Would you prefer this scenario where you could win a certain amount of money? Or would you prefer this scenario where you could win even more money, but that might also give you a risk that you might not win anything at all? Most people go with certainty in that situation. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, right? Yeah. Um, bird in the hand. Bird in the hand, absolutely. <laughs> of course, some people are just happy to go, well, actually, I came with nothing, I'm happy to leave with nothing, and they'll yeah. go for the big risk, which says a lot about their approach to change and risk. Um, and they went on to then find that when the value proposition was presented as a loss, in other words, would you rather lose this amount of money and know that you're going to be losing this amount of money, or would you rather lose this amount of money with a percentage chance of not losing anything at all? People actually behave very differently in that scenario, very consistently. And they put it down to this, this idea of, of positioning something as a loss suddenly almost you short circuit that logical, rational <laughs> thinking and you get to something a bit more primal, a bit more emotional. Yeah. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Intuitively, that makes sense. Mm. Um, so what do most people choose then of those? People or do they just very get risk- indignant and go, I'm not losing anything? Well, there is that. I'd rather not have any of those options. But Option if you force three, them, <laughs> um, people behave in, in a much more risky way. So they will actually take, they will risk losing a much larger sum of money if there's a small percentage, they don't lose anything at all. Wow. Um, so that's, you know, that's pretty significant. And so people switch, suddenly switch to this, you know, incredibly risky behavior and much less predictable, much less rational behavior. Um, and that, that has to enter our conversation about change because so often change and loss go together, mm. uh, either in reality or in a perceived way. That's really important that we acknowledge that. Yeah, I, I, bringing it back to recruiters, I don't feel we talk enough about, you know, so the hiring manager is after this unicorn, as we like to call them, you know, this mm. person, this one person on the planet that can do the job uh, rather than being a bit realistic. And they don't think about the loss of they can't deliver the project or the loss of pro- uh, profitability while they're waiting to fill this role, etc. So I guess that's possibly an angle that more recruiters need to take. So what are you prepared to lose? Some of the requirements on the job description or some profit. Mm. Interesting. And it's so See, rare. And you've only been talking for nine minutes and I'm already like, <laughs> ka-ching, light bulb. It, I, th- I think that would be, make a huge shift in the way people start to think about recruitment because mm. um, it's, it's so rarely part of the conversation, isn't it? What are you prepared to lose? Yeah. And, and how will we know? You know, when will, where will we find the point where we go, actually, that's the... That's the point at which we're prepared to lose X amount. Beyond that, that's too much. Yeah. Ahead of that, that's fine. It's quite, it's quite an unusual thing because that, that a, a different type of loss is loss of face. You know, someone's yeah. saying, actually, I'm, I'm prepared to lose the company at an ex- a particular amount of money. Yeah. In order to I can't to get deliver a- that project because I can't hire that person. Exactly. Because I'm after a unicorn. Oh, I'm loving this. Loss aversion, really important unconscious bias. Again, we weren't due to talk about this today, but, you know, loss aversion is a really big driver um that, that people will either stick their heads in the sand or they will actively make um sort of patterns of behavior that reduce their perceived or actual losses that, that's a that's a really t- really heavy unconscious bias that we all walk around with can you give me an example um okay so um 
An example of this could be could be a sunk a sunk cost fallacy. Okay, so here's an example of that, and this is this is true because you might tell from my accent I'm from the north of England, and we have a bit of a reputation <laughs> in the north of being quite you know quite um tight tight. Yeah, well, thank you. That's that was the. <laughs> That was the, the label I was looking for. Um, well, as an Australian, I can offend all the English. It's fine. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, All-you-can-eat buffet. Yep. I've paid my money. I'm going to eat as much as I possibly can because I've sunk that cost, even if it makes me feel ill for a couple of days. So that oh is that's an example of the sunk cost fallacy. Um, wow. And I actually, that happened to me. You know, I remember I went to one of those... Um, <laughs> Like, what are they called? Like world buffets, where you could have like mm-hmm. a carvery and a Chinese meal and and some baobuns on the side. Um, uh, and and I I really did make myself very poorly because I was I was absolutely said that I was going to get my money's worth from that particular scenario, and it was just a classic one of you know I've lost this much therefore. Another example could be let's say you bought concert tickets to see your favourite band. And when you set off, there's a terrific snowstorm that actually might be really dangerous to kind of head off in. But that loss aversion, that sunk cost fallacy in this particular case, would mean that most people would try and try and get there because they might not get their money back. And they've already committed to putting aside the time and putting aside the money of having a good evening out together watching their favourite band that actually they might run the risk of you know having an accident or um, not getting there. Do you think that's why some managers hang on to team members that they've recently hired that aren't great then? Because they're mm. like, ooh, loss of face or Some cost fallacies are a really good example of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, wow. It's my decision. I've owned it. I've made it. I don't want to lose face. I don't want to lose the amount of effort and, and resources that I put into developing this person, even if they're not quite the right fit. I don't think I've, well, mind you, I'm not a psychology geek, but of course I just haven't, considering the five decades I've been on the planet, haven't come across this before as a sort of a bias that actually I think is at play a lot. Mm. (laughs) I always think it's, you know, in recruitment, I always think it's like gap bias or, you know, didn't go to my school bias or class bias or, and then all of the others, ethnicity, gender, et cetera. I've never thought about loss Gosh, that's huge! It, it, it's a really big arena, and I'm going to just hold up to the to the webcam. And this is audio only, but yeah. if you can see this, this has been my weekend project. I built some adult Lego. I'm obviously <laughs> at the age I now where I think it might be Batman. It is a Batman. He's head. waving it around quite a lot. It's a um, Batman head. I've clearly reached the <laughs> age where Lego becomes so complicated. Oh right, I know, <laughs> and that you can call it adult Lego as if, as if that's a thing. <laughs> Apparently, it is. They come in a very adult black box rather than a very brightly colored one does that mean they don't hurt so much when you step on them and you bare feet (laughs) (laughs) i think that's the case i think that is the case Uh, so that was to remind me of an example of what you were just talking about where you know with where you've got a um you know a high you've made a hire and it's maybe not quite the right fit there's something called the ikea effect yeah and i'll send you the link to some of this research so you can add it to the show notes if you wanted to but so the ikea effect follows that um a number of researchers discovered that, uh, and again, this is back to value. When two groups were given a Lego set to build, one group was given the instructions and a group of pieces. The other group were given the pre-built toy or car or whatever it was, the model, and told to play with it for a while, and then asked to come up with a number that they would pay for it to keep it. 
consistently, significantly. You can see where this is going, right? Yeah. The group that built the set from scratch would pay substantially more. I think, I think the research suggested four times more. Because of the energy they put into creating it and building it themselves. Yeah, they literally built it themselves. They put something of themselves into it and they, therefore they wanted that value back. That really does explain why people hang on to bad hires. Mm. That's yeah. really interesting. The IKEA effect, they call it. Because the same would be true if you know if you had a piece of furniture that you built yourself that people value yeah. it more. Yeah. They hold on to it for longer, certainly. Interesting. Okay. So going back to our changes, we're not going to sing David Bowie. We've realised it's too challenging. Um- <laughs> Let's turn to face the change, shall we? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what can recruiters do? They've come up against a hiring manager who is being ridiculous. Are there any sort of tips or tricks or what can they do to kind of negotiate around this fear of loss as perhaps it is rather than fear of change? Yeah. Well, again, if you Google around any of this stuff, you probably can't, it wouldn't take too long before you come across a model by an author called Kubler-Ross, which is around grief. I would challenge that. I'd say stay away from that for now. Um, okay. I think this is a helpful tool, helpful model. Mm. Um, but this is very much around um, actually responding to grief in a particular way. And I would, I would argue loss and grief don't always go hand in hand. I can, I can nope. lose something but not have to grieve for it. I just want it. them to lose some of the ridiculous things on the job description for starters. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and lose their opinion of, oh, we can't have somebody working from home or we can't have this or we can't have that. Not necessarily grief. <laughs> you might see you might see some of those behaviors wound together so, you know, things like shock and denial and anger yeah of course but actually this idea that there's this logical flow that people go through when they're experiencing change i've never seen happen in in reality and i think um it, it's well worth just holding that up and saying you know that's a model that worked for a particular um mm. scenario that doesn't automatically work for change yeah um so there are all kinds of tools and models that are really helpful and of course i'm going to come back to language um, yeah. I think it's really good to really consider the language that we're using to talk about any kind of change. Because typically the language about change is really tricky. You hear a lot mm. about driving change or managing change. Um, and that almost gives this kind of idea that uh, it's possible for one person or a group of people to sit at the wheel of whatever this change mm-hmm. is and, and kind of to steer it and, and do something with that or press the accelerator with it sounds heavy to me, like it's effort. Yeah. Like because I'm quite fine with change, um, but it sounds like oh, this is going to be hard work, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. and, and, it, and it, oft, it often puts the onus on one person or a group of people if they're you know leaders or change agents or whatever that language might be. It, it seems it, it gives the implication that there's yeah that there's there's a lot of weight that needs to be shifted. I can um, imagine those that don't like change avoiding anybody with job title change agent. <laughs> you can imagine them like hiding. Oh, God, oh, here they come down the corridor. I'm running into the loo. <laughs> waving their big change flag. Here yeah. they come. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it doesn't quite work when you think about remote working. But, you know, back in the day when we were in the office, I could totally see people doing that. <laughs> and, and not wanting to get too navel-gazing into the language, because I will, I will do it if you don't stop yeah. me. You know, that, that whole piece of dynamics of change encourages the idea that change is something that is done to people rather than something that people have an active part in shaping and making happen um going back to the analogy of the car i think the reality of a lot of change is that it doesn't happen at the driving uh the driving seat with a wheel it actually happens in the engine yeah all the energy comes from there 
And so the best way to, to get into talking about change and thinking about change and, uh, and making change happen is to find where the energy is and start there. Because that is what will um, create the propulsion and the energy that's, that's needed to, to move something forward or make that change happen. And I assume that, no, I shouldn't assume. I'll just assume anyway, because I'm halfway through that sentence, uh, that it often comes from pain, that we have Ooh. a problem. You know, we can't hire or we're losing stuff. I mean, that's certainly what's going on in this market. Um, the great reassessment, resignation, whatever buzzword you'd like to call it. But that would be a pain point driving the energy of change, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Can you say others? some more about that? I'm interested, I'm interested to know more about that. So, Just that, I mean, really across the board, across the world, from having overfired in 2020, they're now overhiring in 2021, 2022. And they're really, companies are really seriously struggling. So mm. it's like where they may have been able to pick and choose before, now it's literally like uh, now we have to accept, we need to open the net more. We need mm. to reduce some of our biases. But it would be coming from pain, that need to change Yeah, in many respects. But then, of course, if you balance it with the, what they'll lose if they don't hire. And also what you're talking about reminds me so much of the facilitation that I've started doing, which is all around design thinking. So you actually get like people in a room sh collaboratively sharing like what their pain points are and then democratically voting and then creating solutions together. It's quite nice because then the resistance drops yes. as well, which is quite interesting. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's that. Yeah. I think that's really personal, the idea of, you know, change coming from a place of pain i think that, that that is for a lot of people that's that's the reality and change and that, that creates a lot of urgency um yeah. you know it, can the you, energy can, come from somewhere else does it always have to be negative yeah often well often it's about harnessing the emotion so the you know that energy within the car analogy we were talking about a second ago <laughs> that can come from anywhere it can come from logic and reason and and fact and you know the the work of somebody like cotter who who talked about change a lot and he, he's you know wrote a great book about penguins and melting icebergs which i could recommend to checking mm. out but he talks about creating a compelling argument yeah and then and then recruiting people who will help you sell that idea to the rest of the team or the business or, or whoever it is that you're looking to convince and that and that in that case the emotion what in a sense is pain but it's also a bit of fear and it's a bit of urgency mm. but there's also some idea of selling the optimism of the future state that you're moving towards and that can be as compelling so that's totally something that recruiters can do in the intake strategy session that they far too often don't get, but they need to demand, which is chapter five of my book, uh, which I crowdsourced. It's not all me. Um, where, you know, they're gathering that data and that evidence and almost that pool of supporters as well, if you will, to go into those meetings and saying, like, this is the state at play. This is why we need to make this change. This is why things will be better in the future if we do this. So they can totally spin it to the positive. Definitely. Like it. Um, just just coming back to what you were saying about things feeling heavy, I think that's also a really common sense from a lot of teams, from a lot of leaders, and and there's a really good reason behind that is, which is that you know big things like big changes move really slowly in a lot of organisations. Um, there's a wonderful book which is quite kind of introspective, a bit of a philosophical book called The Clock of the Long Now. Um, it's by an author called Stuart Brand, and he he credits among other people Brian Eno record producer Brian Eno with yeah. this idea of of um pace layers so if you imagine a kind of like an onion and each layer of that onion is a different layer of speed that change moves through um he likens that to 
tiers of society that move at different speeds and change needs to kind of go through all of them in order to make something happen. So there's like a surface layer, which is sort of like fashion and technology and, and that moves super, super quickly, changes all the time. And then as you move inwards, those layers kind of become slower. So you've got things like commerce and infrastructure and then governance and then a more glacial pace. You've got things like culture and then right at the center, you've got the slowest, almost unmoving constant, which is like human nature. I I just thought HR processes were going to be right there. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And that explains why that example at the start of the call, we're talking about, you know, moving from remote working. Yeah. Um, that could have taken two years because of that, because of those pace layers would need to have been chunked through at the normal speed. But what um, the pandemic has done is it's just cut through a lot of those and it's meant yeah. that you could get through to things like nature actually quite quickly. Yeah. And surprise the people. Outer, the outer layer took control. The, <laughs> the fast layer took control. Control. Tech, goodbye, off you go. Fashion layer. And we're back to Bowie again, aren't we? With yeah. uh, Fashion. Um <laughs> But yeah, you can take any example, any example yeah. of change, you can, you can use that as a little model to think about what change do you want to affect and how likely is it to move slowly? When is it likely to move fast? And how are we going to help people along with that? I think that's often where, where change fails or people struggle with it is because it just takes ages a lot of the time, big things. Yeah. And people just lose, lose the energy and then lose the will to make that change happen and will find reasons that it shouldn't. Yeah, um, and I've seen that when I've um, done workshops and in particular the last one, you know, this... There's a group of care homes and they're just really struggling to hire, you know, combination of the pandemic and, of course, Brexit. And, you know, we come up with these great ideas and solutions and they're ready and you could just see from so many of them that they've been through attempted change before Mm. and they just went, yeah, okay, that's all well and good, now what? And you could just literally see them deflate because they needed the leader who didn't do it to take control and go, right, we're going to push this through because this is we we need to do this. We have seventy vacancies. Um, I think that's another. Yeah, so it needs. To, I guess it needs to come from the top as well, mm. and the and the culture and the complicated, isn't it? It's so <laughs> complex, and 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 I guess that's the reason why there are all these different programs and tools and models around it. And people have been writing books for for this for years and years and years because it's it's about people. Mm. You know, effective change is about harnessing the energy of whatever people are going to be responsible for making it happen. And and people are complex. Yeah. And sometimes Uh, they want the change, but then won't put their hand up and say, I'll help facilitate it as well, which is also fascinating. We're a weird lot, aren't we? (laughs) We are. (laughs) And um, one of the things that we do at TMS is that we use kind of tools to kind of depersonalize it all. So, you know, there are all kinds of psychometrics that you can use for change that that are really helpful. Um, but there's one that we that we do that kind of helps people understand the energy we put into assessing risk. So, for example, um, some people will even hear that word risk and go, oh, brilliant. You know, I'm I'm in. Count me in. I'm excited about something new happening. I'm excited about getting involved with it and rolling up my sleeves and making it happen. Even other people will hear that word and go, oh, no. Like you just said there, we've done that before. We did that about three months ago and it failed spectacularly how is it going to be different this time? I need to understand mm. that right from the start before you've got my buy-in. Um, so, you know, having discussions with people around how optimistic they are, for example. How, um, sorry? How optimistic they are is, is, a, is a good starting point. So we have a measure of that. We actually measure that on a, on a spectrum. Um, how much energy are they likely to put into finding fault in people or projects? 
that's something that you can measure and have a conversation with people about. Because, for example, wow. if, if a team who's very high on fault finding, you're trying to negotiate with them around change and have a conversation with them, you need to start there and address those faults, address any assumptions and critiques they may have before they'll even be on site. Yeah, I think I'm the risk taker. <laughs> to a point. I'm going to yeah. jump out of a plane. But, <laughs> yeah. I I, yeah, because I'd be like, well, if we come across the problem, we'll work it out. Mm. I'm just thinking exactly. of like all the services that I've had through my business over the years. It's changed so many times. It's nothing like what it was when I started 12 years ago. And I just try something. If it doesn't work, I learn from it. I move on. Yeah. Interesting. And that, and that sense of being able to do that, it's a bit like a psychological well that everyone has. Mm. Mm. And, and you can draw from that well and it will give you that energy to, to do what you've done and try yeah. something different and not really care if it works out or not, but just try it for the sake of doing something different. But also it can be those those levels in that well can drop and things can drain it and you need to then top it up somehow. So we work with teams and we work with leaders on on having those conversations about how do we draw from that and how do we, how do we utilize those resources that we've got, those psychological resources in order to make change happen or to consider risk in a different way. One of my favorite conversations to have is around time and this idea of psychological time. Where do you place yourself in time? And you'll know this from talking to people. Some people are very much in the here and now, and they, they're sorry, so very centered, very present, very concerned with just moving forward. I would say probably even more so since the pandemic, people become quite more mm. present focused. Yeah. Some people just face the past and they, they're nostalgic and sentimental and they want to look back and look at learning lessons from the past and making sure that past is referenced clearly yeah. and obviously. Others over in the future and they they were also almost facing the future and they place themselves in the future regularly and, the, and the, for them the future is a, a completely world clear crystal possibilities clear world of possibilities <laughs> absolutely and you can shape it right because you know you have control over the future but maybe not so the past that's the sort of language that somebody would would use if they you know have a, a more future focused you know psychological timeline so if you had any tips to give our recruiters who are Oh, sorry if you just heard my spaniel deciding to dig under the table while I'm recording. Um, <laughs> I love working from home. It's so much fun. <laughs> to be fair, I've been doing it for 12 years, so I didn't actually oh. – I was sitting watching all these people complaining, going, what's wrong with you? Like, it's just – yeah, I got used to the change already. Back when it was actually really hard to recruit uh, – to work from home. Um, but sort of if you had any final tips that you really wanted to share or a final nugget that you just thought, you know, if you if you are facing such resistance, just start here or go read this or any final thoughts. Uh, I've got th- I've got three tips, and we'll do two L's and an E. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, first of all, an, an L would be language. Be really, really careful and considered about the language you use to talk about change. Think about all the things we talked about on the context of this conversation. The language is going to be really clear about how sure. you engage with people and how people hear your message, whatever that might be. Um, onto an E, emotion, get a temperature check of what the emotion is like about change in the past, change right now, change in the future, and try and harness that emotion if you can. Again, that will come back to the language that you use. Mm. And then the other L will be about loss. Be mindful of any loss that might be read into, perceived, or actual, you know, real loss that people might um, experience as a result of the change that you're proposing or you're talking about. Name it. Be open, be transparent about it, because until you've done that, people will not be able to get over that hurdle into a space where they're accepting of whatever the future state might be. Yeah, love it. Amazing advice. I could talk to you for another hour, of course. Um, 
<laughs> as ever. Oh, okay. um, if people would like to hunt you down to find out more, um, speaking of words, <laughs> that sounds shocking, doesn't it? Um, what's the best way? Uh, yeah, please don't hunt me down because <laughs> I can't run very fast. And, and it'll be a very short race. I, I can vouch for that. <laughs> I would say you'll find me on all of the socials at that Mark Gilroy. Um, and if you want to find anything, find out anything about what we as a company do, what sort of profiles we offer, you'll find us at tmsdi.com. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Hiring Partner Perspective Unedited Podcast, proudly supported by the people at WorkDrive. Hopefully you really enjoyed what you heard and have left feeling inspired. And if so, I would love your help to create real change. Please pass this podcast on to your hiring leaders and other recruiters and HR. Even share it on your social channels if you feel so inclined. But the more reach we can get, the more change we can create. So please remember to subscribe, of course, on your favorite podcast platform. And do come and say hello at Hiring Partner Perspective on Instagram, where I share behind the scenes of what's going on. Until next time, thank you. Have you ever found yourself scrolling through financial news and wondering, how does any of this affect me? How can I read a major headline and truly understand what impact that has on not only my portfolio, but my life? Well, our goal on the podcast Inside the Street, hosted by Wall Street analyst Sela Shifre Partners, is to provide public investors and young professionals with a deeper understanding of the mechanics that drive those major headlines. And what better way to dive into these mechanics and hosting Wall Street analysts themselves to discuss the newest trends in finance firsthand? Well, on our show, we bring you real perspectives from the front line. Hearing these analysts give commentary has made our listeners much more well-versed on the financial markets. This approach to discussion allows our listeners to engage in conversation with much more educated opinions and predictions. So be sure to check out our show, Inside the Street, wherever you find your podcasts.